All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, we get to do something kind of fun today. Um, we get to do child dedications again, which are always fun. And so I'm going to go ahead and ask uh, the Newcombs and uh, the Woods to come on up. And um, I want to introduce you to these families and their children. Let me give you a little ex explanation about what we're doing. Um, why don't you guys come on right, right up on up here? We've got a small enough group. Kyle, I want them to see your handsome face. Because I love it. Um, so, child dedications. Uh, Proverbs 22.6 says, Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That is one of those verses that parents cling to, uh, and appropriately, because raising children is incredibly hard. Raising children is one of the riskiest and bravest things we do. And, and when God's Word gives us something like that, man, we grab it, right? We grab it. Now, here's the thing. It's not a promise, right? It's not, it's not some formula that you work. You know, if you can just do input A, B, and C, then you're going to get X, Y, and Z output. That's not the way it works. It's a principle. And the principle is this, that, that as we shape the appetites of our children, through the power of the gospel, for the glory of God, that appetite won't leave them. And that appetite will continue to guide and direct their behavior. And as parents, I think that's the, the best thing we can hope for. We, we don't know how our kids are going to turn out or where they're going to go or what they're going to do. They're just a world of potential. But what we really want are children who have an appetite for the glory of God to be a blessing to others and experience the blessing of God. And, and so as we dedicate this morning, what we're doing is, is threefold. Um, our parents are dedicating themselves to raising their children in such a way that their kids come to know who God is so that they come to love Him, that their appetite is wet for the presence of God and, and, and for the glory of God. They are dedicating their children to God. They're, they're saying, this is a great gift that God has given me, and I'm giving this child back, right? God is, is the true and better parent, and I need God to, to order the steps of my child. So they're dedicating their child to God. And we as a church are dedicating ourselves to walking with them in this process of parenthood. Because the reality is, even though we are we're an individualistic society, uh, we are meant to do this in community. We were meant to do this with the encouragement and the strengthening and the, and the help and the blessing of others. And so let me introduce you to our families. Um, first of all, we have the Newcombs. I think we have a, yes, yes. They're going to be dedicating Amos. Yes. You guys say hi to the Newcombs. I want to introduce you to the Woods. The Woods are going to be dedicating Skylar. Got a picture? Yes. You guys say hi to the woods. All right. What I want to do is uh, a simple um, liturgy, and then I'm going to ask uh, their community and their family to come up over them, okay? So, um, parents, do you dedicate yourselves to raising your children in such a way that they come to hear the gospel, know the gospel, and, and, and you just do your best to... to ground them in grace if you do say we do. Indeed. Praise God. Church, if you are dedicating yourselves to walking with these families to come alongside them, aid them, love them, be a blessing to them, say we do. Praise God. All right, let's get the community groups up here and families. Uh, just come on up, lay some hands on them so we can pray for these guys. I'll get out of the way. <laughs> We've got a large crowd coming. <laughs> All right. Hey, y'all, we're kind of like um, charismatic with seatbelts on, so y'all just put your hands out, okay? Just, there you go, there you go, because you're going to be praying over them too. All right, there we go. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of these children. We thank you for these families. We thank you for the gift of your son, that you gave Jesus, that we might have hope, that, that, that we can look at our children with joy, knowing 
that, that you love them more than we do and that you have paid a price we can't understand so that they can receive a blessing that we can't value fully. I thank you for these families. I pray that you will just ground them in your grace and free them in the hope of the gospel. Bless them. Bless this church as we seek to walk with one another, one another sharing each other's joy, uh, sharing one another's sorrow, just, just coming alongside and being true community with one another. Lord, bless. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Oh, we have a gift for you guys, too. Corinnal. All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chair around you. Uh, we're going to be going over to Luke chapter 18 this morning, page 877. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about politics. Um, we live in a politically and socially turbulent time. Tremendous tension, tremendous angst. Um, it feels like things are being torn apart around us. What does this ancient text have to say to this modern tension? I believe it has a lot to say. We're going to find here, I believe, a needed rebuke, an invitation, and a much-needed comfort this morning. Uh, before we dig into the text, I want to invite you back. Next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series called Relate, and we're going to be looking at how the gospel speaks into human relationships. That, that place where the rubber meets the road, that place where a lot of times there's a ton of friction um, and difficulty. How does the gospel come in and help us to relate to one another well? We're going to be looking at how um, the gospel speaks into friendships and what it has to say about friendships and dating and marriage and sex and parenting and work. We're going to be looking at human relationships and how the gospel speaks directly in a very practical way into how we relate with one another. So I want to invite you back next week as we launch that. All right, before we read our text, I want to set it up. Trailhead, Trailhead is, is really a, a beautiful thing. And we're a bit unusual. I'm not saying we're perfectly unique, but we are a bit unusual. We span the age uh, and political spectrum. We have boomers, we have Xers, we have millennials. We have the next thing. I don't even know what they're called yet. And as a result, we have really a lot of different thoughts represented here. We have conservatives. We have progressives. We have Republicans and Democrats. We have Trump supporters and people who are still feeling the burn. We have people that went to the latest protest and others who want to protest the protests. And here's the thing. They're sitting in the same pews, if you can call these pews. They're sitting in the same community groups. They're doing life together. How are we going to do this? How are we going to protect what we have? How are we going to endure political and social division like this and yet stay a family? Not a dysfunctional family where everybody goes off into their own corners and, 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 and they wave at each other across the room, but, but actual family. Loving and caring for one another, doing life with one another. We live in a culturally and politically divided time, a battlefield of ideas and initiatives that has left few without wounds. And as a result, when we see one another, we often see our own pain. These are difficult times full of tension, outrage, fear, and misunderstanding. And more important than just protecting trailhead, the question arises, how can the church be a beacon of light in these dark times? How can the church be a city set on a hill, a city within a city embodying the truer and better principles of the gospel in the midst of these passions? How can we be a lighthouse for hope and grace while still allowing our members to be passionate about things that matter and with which others in this same family will disagree. So today, we're going to start trying to answer this question. We're going to be looking at an ancient text that speaks clarity into this mess of our modern times. 
And I hope this morning our hearts are open to a rebuke, eager for the invitation, and longing for comfort. So let's take a look at our text. We're looking at Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so let's talk about this parable. (laughs) you got two men that are going to the temple to pray. One's having a good day, one's not, right? The Pharisee is feeling really good about himself. He's having a good day. Um, and we've all had those days, right? He's, he's just walking. His head is held high. His, his spine is straight. And, um, and it says that he went and, and, and standing by himself offered a prayer. Now, the Greek behind that phrase is, is a little bit difficult to translate. It can mean standing by himself, but, but I think that misses the connotation. I think it's better translated or better understood as taking his stand. I think that grabs the, the attitude behind it. He, he walks into the temple and he is taking his stand. There is something in him that identifies and says, I belong here. This is my domain. He is comfortable here and it's reflected in his posture as he takes his stand and makes his prayer. He begins his prayer by saying, God, I thank you, which is a good start, by the way. If you're ever wondering how to start a prayer, that's a great place to start. The problem is where he goes from there. He doesn't say, God, I thank you, that you. That never shows up. He says, God, I thank you, that I. In fact, the word I shows up five times in the next two sentences. I this, I that. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, I fast twice a week, I even tithe on the stuff that I buy. That's what that means, that phrase. He doesn't just tithe on what he gets in terms of earnings, he tithes on what he buys. So there'd be a double tithe because the one who sold it also tithed on it. What he's saying is this, he exceeds the law's demands. That's what he's saying. I fast twice a week. That's more than the law requires. That's more than God requires. Look at me. I'm doing more. I'm doing what God asked, and I'm doing more. Right? I tithe on even what I buy. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He was self-disciplined. He was driven. He was moral. He took the Word of God seriously his doctrine seriously, his life seriously, his religion seriously. Now what Jesus doesn't mention, but everyone in that audience would have known because they experienced it. What they would have pictured in their mind is that the Pharisee wasn't standing by himself. The Pharisee is operating within a system that reinforces his assumptions about himself. There were shared values in that space where he took his stand that made him feel justified about his feelings and important about his accomplishments. See, what you don't see, but they would have seen in their mind's eye, is that there were people standing there applauding the Pharisee. Not literally applauding, but but in their presence right? With their looks, with their demeanor, with their attitudes. They were, they were metaphorically patting him on the back. They were giving him praise. They were giving him approving looks. They were giving him a welcoming environment. They were liking his Facebook tweets and retweeting his tweets, right? They were, they were saying, man, you are one of us and we like you. 
You embody who we want to be. He walked into this presence. I felt very at home. And it was reinforced and echoed back to him from the people that were there that shared the same values. I mean, think for a moment how differently the Pharisee would have been acting if he was walking into a Roman garrison. A Roman garrison would have been filled with non-Jewish people. It would have been filled with military personnel. It would have been filled with people that had very different motivations, very different values, very different goals in life. Do you think he would have walked into the Roman garrison and taken his stand and, 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 and then enjoy? No, probably not. Probably not. In that environment, it would have taken a very different look. He would have walked into the Roman garrison and felt threatened. He would have felt diminished. He would have felt insulted. And in his heart, he probably would have harbored a certain amount of animosity, resentment, anger toward those who didn't value what he valued, toward those who didn't echo his praise of himself back to himself. But this Pharisee in this parable is in his element. The Pharisee is surrounded by his people. He is on display. You know, we talk about this weird phenomenon today, the red feed, blue feed on Facebook. And and, and what that means is basically we have the ability to self-select who we want to hear from, right? I don't know about you, but I got way more friends on Facebook than I actually have friends. You know what I'm saying? Like there's like 1,500 people out there that call me. I don't know 1,500 people, right? But, But they're in my Facebook circle. And I can only see so many people on my feed. And so what ends up happening is is we end up interacting with people. We choose how we want to. We unfollow people. You ever done that thing? You ever unfollowed somebody? I don't want to see your posts anymore. I won't unfriend you, but I'm going to pretend you don't exist. I just won't see you anymore. And so what ends up happening is our feed ends up getting filled with ideas that echo our ideas back to us. The red feed, blue feed, right? If you're a Republican, you you end up with a bunch of Republican friends that are retweeting and reposting memes and all these ideas that kind of just reinforce what you already believe and share your preconceived biases and make you feel good about what you already think. And if you're a Democrat, you've, you've got the same feed, red feed, blue feed. You know what this parable tells us in some ways? Is that this is not an unprecedented event. People have self-segregated themselves into comfortable groups since forever. At least the Tower of Babel. People surround themselves with people who make them feel good about themselves. We surround ourselves with voices that echo our voice, our bias, our thoughts back to ourselves. The Pharisee stands in the temple, and these are the Pharisee's people. And his comfort shows. When you read his prayer, if you really look at it, it's not even really a prayer, is it? It's more of a resume. It's more of a statement than it is a prayer. He doesn't ask God for anything. He doesn't really give thanks to God for anything. He just says, thank you, God, for my resume. That I am who I am that I think what I think, that I value what I value. He's reviewing his resume before God, assuming that God is both pleased and impressed. Because he was impressed as he looked at himself. And all the people around him agreed with him, and they also were impressed. How could God not? After all, he was living by God's rules. He was excelling at God's standards. Why wouldn't God love that? And in the middle of his prayer, as he's looking around, he sees the tax collector. Now, tax collectors were people that were disdained in that Jewish culture. Tax collectors were Jewish people who went to work for the Roman government. And they collected taxes from their Jewish brethren in order to make those payments to the Roman government. And they were often pretty, pretty bad about it. I mean, it was, it was one of those systems where they didn't get paid well, and, and it was kind of an extortion system where they had to basically demand and force people to pay. And whatever, whatever they collected from their Jewish brothers and sisters that was above what was required for the Roman payment, in some ways augmented their 
salary. These were people that were generally despised in the Jewish population. Tax collector, let me put the tax collector wouldn't have been popular in the temple. Okay? He would come there to worship, but those aren't his people. That's not where he's going to receive applause. And as the Pharisee looks up, I don't think he was looking for someone to scorn. Like in that moment, he's like, I need to scorn someone. Instead, he looked up and just saw him. And his heart thought, God, thank you I'm not like him. God, thank you that I am not like him. Now, maybe it was a surge of self-righteous judgment. Like in that moment, maybe when he saw the tax collector, he, he really did feel maybe anger, resentment. You know, like, like, who are you to be in this place? You don't belong here, right? God, thank you. I'm not like this guy. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't anger. Maybe it was pity. Maybe it was him looking up with self-righteous pity and, and basically in his heart saying, man, I'm sorry, you're not like me. It's too bad you can't be me. Think like me, act like me, look like me, have the same values as me. See, that contempt can be expressed not just in, in anger and, 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 and opposition, it can be expressed in pity, self-righteous pity. Oh, I feel sorry for you. If you just read the same blogs I read, if you just knew the same things I knew, if you, if you just were influenced by the same people I was influenced by, if you just thought like I thought, you wouldn't be so ignorant, so blind. He looks up and thanks God that he is not the tax collector. Here's the thing, you guys. The Pharisee left that day. He left the temple, walking down from the temple, feeling good about himself. Feeling just as good about himself when he left as when he arrived. And as he left, people were still patting him on the back. People were still looking at him with approving gazes. But as he walked tall in the confidence of his self-approval, as he walked tall with the impression that God was just as impressed, he walked away in opposition to God. For all of his moral behavior, for all of his good theology, for all of his self-control, for all of his church attendance, and, and all of his sanctimonious language, he walked away in opposition to God. Unlike the Pharisee who was taking his stand, the, tax says, the text says that the tax collector was standing far off. It's not hard to understand why. He felt like an outsider. Like he didn't belong. And it wasn't just because people despised him. Right? So it wasn't like he was standing far off despising the people who were despising him. You know what I'm saying? Like he wasn't standing far off and thinking, man, you guys are idiots. You're so self-righteous. If you were just like me, if you were just better educated, a little bit liber more liberally minded, a little bit more politically activated, a little bit more concerned about how we're going to function in the broader world, that's not where he was. That's not why he was standing far off. He wasn't being his own version of the Pharisee. You know why he was standing far off? Because he felt the weight of his own inadequacy before God. He was standing far off because he felt the shame, and I'll say the healthy shame, that comes when we feel the gap between who we are and who God is. The gap between our best effort <laughs> and God's lowest perfection. When we feel that gap, we feel a healthy shame. And that healthy shame can drive us to a healthy place called humility. See, he wasn't there to display his resume before himself or others or God. He was there to find grace. 
It says that he beat his breast, which was a cultural way of expressing sorrow in that culture. He is just standing apart with his eyes down. He's not even paying attention to the Pharisee who's taking his stand. He is focused on himself and his position before God, beating his breast in humility. And all he could say was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is a broken and honest heart making a humble and audacious plea. I know I don't measure up, but will you love me anyway? I know I am flawed and broken and much, much, much to be filled with shame about, but will you be merciful to me? Will you not give me what I deserve? Will you show grace to me and give me what I don't deserve? It is an audacious and humble plea. I don't have a right to be here. But I think you want me here. I don't have a right to be here. I don't have a right to demand your approval and your love. Will you give it to me anyway? Will you just love me? And then Jesus says the truly shocking thing. The kind of thing that the Pharisees could not stand to hear. In fact, it's stuff like this that will lead the Pharisees to not only reject Jesus, but kill him to silence him because they can't stand hearing it. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It is the tax collector. The one everyone despises. The one no one's even paying attention to. The one no one is giving credibility to. The one who is standing on the outskirts beating his breast in the sorrow of his own shame that goes home justified by God. A friend of God. While the Pharisee walked away full of self-congratulation, with people reinforcing his view of life. The tax collector walked away with God's acceptance. The tax collector walks away with God's full approval, having received the grace he asked for. You guys, this is really heavy. Really heavy. Listen to this. There is a way to follow God that isn't following God at all. There is a way to follow God. And you will get the applause of religious people. You will get the praise of Christians. Evangelicalism will come around you and celebrate you. And you are not following God. It is a form of self-deception. That's heavy. So what is this parable about religious dudes in the ancient Near East have to do with us today? A ton. In fact, I think this parable was honestly written directly to us. It is a necessary word of rebuke. You're like, Steve, dude, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not even religious, man. I'm just visiting you're going to call me out, right? I'm no Pharisee. All right, this has nothing to do with whether you're religious or not religious. This has nothing to do with whether you go to church or don't go to church. The religious, the irreligious, the conservative, the liberal, it doesn't matter. Phariseeism is not a matter of, of religion per se. It is an attitude of the heart to which we are all prone. We are all prone. Take a look again at, again at verse 9. Take a look again at verse 9. 
Because this is us, you guys. This is us. Verse 9, he also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I'm right. I don't like you. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. And because I'm right, I can make fun of you. I can mock you. I can feel sorry for you. I can hold you with contempt. See, Luke's opening tells us that Jesus was speaking to a very specific audience, an audience that was pleased with themselves and their rightness. And as a result, in their heart, they held others with contempt. See, this is the spirit of being a Pharisee. And it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. This is a a human sin issue, a human pride issue, a broken human heart issue. You are confident in your own righteousness. And you hold those who disagree with you in contempt. We're all Pharisees. We all have our own personal resumes we love to push out there. Yours is probably going to look a little different than mine. But we all have our personal resumes, those, those sets of values by which we measure ourselves and, and declare ourselves right. We all have a certain group of people that we love to be patted on the back by. People that come around us and tell us how right we are. How, how approved we are. And we also have a group of people that we love to hold in contempt. People with whom we disagree People we like to think of ourselves as, I don't know, more more educated, more moral, more enlightened, more, more woke, whatever. We love to look down on those that we think haven't attained whatever status of growth or development or maturity or, or, or whatever it is that we've attained. And so, like the Pharisees, we take our stand in our temples. Facebook, Twitter, the workplace, family, whatever. Now, maybe we don't say it exactly like the Pharisee. When we read the Pharisee's prayer, it seems kind of audacious, right? Most of us wouldn't be that brazen. Thank you, God, that I am a conservative. Right? Thank you, God, that that I am progressive, right? We, We don't... We're really masters of the humble brag, you know what I'm saying? Like, in the culture that they were in, they were much more comfortable, honestly, with calling it like they saw it. And honestly, in some ways, they were more honest than we are. Like, they would actually just, yeah, this is my accomplishment, and this is why I'm proud, right? For us, it's got to be more of a humble brag. We've got to keep it kind of on the down low, right? We've got to be a little sneakier about our brags. And so what we do is instead, we, we hide behind a little humor. We post a funny meme. I was just making a joke, man. It's just kind of funny. I'm not here for an argument which is a great way of saying, I'm here for an argument, but I just don't want you to argue with me. I'm here to say what I want to say, but I don't really want to listen to you. So I'm not here for an argument. I'm here to make a proclamation, and here's a funny meme that says it. Right? We hide behind our PSAs, right? our public service announcements. Hey, this is some information I think you need to know. When really what you're saying is, hey, this is information that shows I'm right, and you're stupid. But it's just a PSA. Public service, just sharing some information, right? We, we do the humble brag thing, right? We, we, we like to hide behind our humor. We like to hide behind our attempts to educate. Listen to me, listen. You have to really want to hear what your heart is saying to hear it. And most of us don't want to hear it. Because your heart is saying the truth while your mouth is hiding it behind all these fancy ways that we hide our true motivations and our true pride. If you really want to hear what your heart is actually saying, you'll hear it. The problem is we don't want to hear it. We're afraid of hearing it. It costs too much. Or it feels like it does. Do you think every Pharisee that heard Jesus speaking that day walked away and were like, wow, I am now enlightened. I will be humble. 
That Pharisee who went into the temple walked away without the approval of God because of their pride. I also am proud and want the approval of God, so I now will be humble, right? Is that what happened? No. The Pharisees got ticked. They got angry at Jesus calling out their self-righteous religious behavior for what it was, an affront to God, and a challenge to his glory, an attempt to sanctify my kingdom and call it God's kingdom, to sanctify my moral achievement and call it God's glory, to steal the glory of God rob God of his due. They did not walk away. (laughs) Humbled in their pride with no longer a need to judge anyone, they judged Jesus. They rejected him and they crucified him. Let me ask you something. What would it cost the Pharisee? What would it cost the Pharisee to be like the tax collector? Because that's the point of the the, the parable, isn't it? That the Pharisee should be like the tax collector, right? Isn't that the point? What would it cost the Pharisee to be like the tax collector? It would cost a lot. It would cost them their pride. It would cost them their resume. It would cost them the applause of the people who are coming around them and telling them how smart they are and how funny they are and how insightful they are. It would would cost them their, their social clout within their circles. It would cost them their pride, which means it would feel like death because we build our identity on our pride. I am who I am because of what I believe. My resume isn't just a statement of what I do. It is the the proof of my my worthiness. It is the statement of, of this is why it's worthwhile I exist. It's a statement of identity. And for me to take that and tear it up feels like death. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a Pharisee before he was a believer, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a man who was applauded and patted on the back and given praise. He was a rising star in that culture. And when he became a follower of Jesus, he says that he counted all of his accomplishments in Phariseeism as a pile of rubbish, a pile of scubalon, a word that means something really unpleasant and stinky. What did it cost, Paul? The people who were singing his praise started chanting for his death. The people who came around him and applauded him for his courage and his bravery for taking a stand and being willing to fight for truth were suddenly willing to kill him because he challenged their assumptions and made them insecure in their pride. What does it cost for a Pharisee to become like a tax collector? Follower of Jesus, should you expect anything different? Your Savior, the one who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died in order to reach a resurrection by which you could be freed, turns to you and says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow. The way of Jesus is the way of death to resurrection. The way of Jesus is not the way of the world. We move from accomplishment to accomplishment, power to power, ascending in our own glory. That's the path of mankind in opposition to God. The path of Christ is the path of life, death, and resurrection. And when we set aside our pride, it will feel like death. And when we say, I will no longer found my identity in the wrong thing, it will feel like death. 
So let me ask you something. How do you know where you're being tempted to feel like a Pharisee? Where, where, where are you tempted to be Pharisaical? Well, where, where do you base your righteousness? What, what, what's on your resume? What values drive you and what accomplishments show them? Right? What do you lead out with? What do you want people to know about you? When you're coming into a new social circle, when you're meeting new people, what do you want them to be impressed with about you? What do you want them to know about you? What makes you angry? What makes you so angry you want to silence people? You want to take away their ability to have a voice because what they're saying gets under your skin. Who do you pity? Because they're not you. They don't think like you. They don't value like you. What makes you want to say amen? Or if you're non-religious, repost? Right? That's, that's, that's the Facebook version of amen. Like. Like. Right? Just amen and all over the place. Right? What are, you, what are you tempted to amen? To say, yes, this is true, and that is true of me, and it's true of you, and it's true of the world. Right? What are you... Follow that line and you'll find your resume. And you find your resume, you'll find your pride. When you find your pride, you will find the very thing that is blocking you from entering into the grace of God. You guys, we are filled with a world of values. Some people are like, Black Lives Matter. Black lives do matter. Other people respond, unborn lives matter. Unborn lives matter. No, refugee lives matter. Yes, refugee lives do matter. Free market capitalism matters. Yeah, free market capitalism does matter. Caring for the weak and abused in society matters. Caring for the weak and abused in society does matter. Caring for orphans matters, yeah. Adoption, foster care, caring for orphans matters. I can't list them all. Listen to me, you guys, listen. It is not bad to be driven by values. It is not bad to be passionate about issues that matter. I am not here telling you, just be nice, right? That's like the latest Facebook post. I don't know, you guys, it's like this big push. Hey, y'all, I get on Facebook because I want to have a good day. Can't we all just be nice and post pictures of kittens? Right? Can't y'all just, if you can't post something nice, don't post anything at all. Right? That's kind of like the latest thing is, is, why can't we all just be nice? Facebook's supposed to be fun, right? Listen, the gospel doesn't call us to niceness. The gospel does not call us to a disconnection from real issues that cause real division. That is a false unity. The gospel calls us to passionate engagement on things that matter, but more importantly, more importantly, it calls us to humility. Humility first, passion second. Humility first, issues second. Humility first, always if we are going to actually be following Jesus. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be radically committed to humility. You cannot allow your sense of self-worth, your sense of rightness to rest on your issues. You can't allow your heart to despise or look down on people with whom you disagree. Even if you despise their position, you cannot despise them. That impulse in your heart to feel so right, that impulse in your heart to judge people with whom you don't agree, listen to me. That's death. 
I don't know how to make it any more clear. That is death. It feels like life. Because it's your righteousness. It's your resume. It's what makes you feel strong. And people come and praise you for having common convictions. But it is death. It separates you from the source of life. God himself. Because God gives grace to the humble. And he resists the proud. Some of you are really struggling, I know, because you are passionate about issues that really matter to you, and and it just provokes you when you see people you love hurt. And I'm not saying it shouldn't hurt you. But I am saying you are not the Savior of the world. If you were able to push your social or political agenda through, you might fix a few problems, but you would unleash 100,000 more evils into this world because you are not God. And you are not the initiator of God's kingdom. God is. God doesn't call you to fix the world. He calls you to be humble in the world. And church, that is how God will fix the world. Do you understand? God will unleash the power of his kingdom into this kingdom through the humility of his people. Because it's in our humility we are once again connected with the God who created us and not resisting him. Responsive to the great initiator instead of fighting him in initiation. And this is why we need the tax collector's prayer. I've been praying a lot this week. And I can't find a better prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When I feel tempted to feel superior, when I feel tempted to be provoked, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When I am tempted to puff myself up and show my my glory and my rightness, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When I am tempted to despise someone and hold them with contempt, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because humility is more important than rightness. And humility is more important than social action. And humility is the starting point of any genuine good. So I believe this prayer is an invitation parables are rebuke, but the prayer is an invitation. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Go to war, not with society, not with people who disagree with you, not with the forces that you don't like. Go to war with the sin in your heart that would lead you to oppose God. Go to war with your pride, knowing that it's a death. Realize that the war isn't out there with politics or social agendas or social movements. It is right here in my heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to wrap it up with a word of comfort. The tax collector went down to his house justified. That is radically good news. He didn't do anything. He didn't accomplish anything. He didn't fix anything. He went down to his house justified because he desperately needed grace. He received grace. Because he showed up with nothing to offer, he received everything. This is incredibly good news. Follower of Christ, that is how we're saved. That is how we are justified, declared right, brought back into relationship with God. Is is not by proving ourselves to God, not by fixing ourselves before God, not, not... promoting our religious behavior before God, but by showing up and saying, I have a need. Will you meet it? I have shame. Will you love me? I'm a sinner. Will you give me mercy? That's how we enter into our relationship with God, and it's the only way we make any progress with God. That's how you grow. You want to know the measure of maturity in the Christian faith? It's not your social convictions. 
It's your humility. You are no more mature than you are humble. Go to war with the pride in your heart. The great news is this word of comfort. God invites you. He loves you. All he asks is that you show up without your resume, without your agenda. Don't say you're trying to follow Jesus while you're trying to lead Jesus to accomplish your goals. Just show up. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you understand the good that God can unleash in your life and in the lives around you as you simply move into a deeper and more real experience of this kind of humility and being embraced by grace? That's the beginning of all true good. That's the beginning of all genuine social change. That's the beginning of actually following Jesus. All right, you guys, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions up on the uh, screen to lead us as God would lead. I just create some space for God to speak to your heart. We're going to share communion in a moment, a celebration that we have a Savior, a God who did for us what we could never do for ourselves and loves us in spite of it all. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace. What a radical, incredible statement that is, that the God, the Holy Creator, the all-perfect one is the embodiment of grace. That you seek to love us not because we deserve it. You seek to free us not because we've earned it. You seek to bless us, not because we have any claim on that blessing, but because you love us. I pray, Lord, that you will break our pride with your love. That we will set aside our low ambitions. We will set aside the pride that comes from confidence in our own strength. We will set aside the fear that comes as we move into humility. And like the tax collector, we won't even see anything but your grace. That we'll be changed and gripped by that love. And we will go down to our houses justified connected once again with the God who loves us, the source of life, the one who unleashes all the blessings we so desperately crave. Meet us in this place. Give us the gift of humility. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.